As our children are making their way out, let me ask the adults a question. If you've been out of school for a little while, you may not, you may have to remember back here just a little bit. But do you like pop quizzes? Do you like tests? I know, I know we're at church and we're Christians and we're not supposed to hate anything. So I had a holy dissatisfaction, that sound better? With any kind of test or pop quiz, hated those words when the teacher would say, Bring a, get out a sheet of paper, it's time for a surprise quiz. But the truth is, we test ourselves, we test ourselves for all kinds of things. Uh, high school students, you guys, if you're looking at college, get the wonderful blessing of taking the SAT, the ACT, and actually paying money to take a test. How's that? You finish college, you go to graduate school, you've got to take the GRE, maybe the bar exam to actually... You get done with law school, you're not done. Then you have to take the bar exam. <clears throat> there are professional tests. Uh, sometimes you have to keep up your standards with your employment. Um, if you're in a school, you have to go through reaccreditation. Um, you can't really, legally at least drive a car without taking a driver's test. There are tests for everything. Uh, We take IQ tests. We take personality tests. I'm sorry to inform you, you have no personality. (laughs) We even sometimes test ourselves when it comes to our bodies. If you have a heart problem, they, they, they put a monitor on you and they stick you on a bike or a treadmill and you do a stress test. Some of you prick your fingers to test your blood, to test your cholesterol. And so it shouldn't surprise us when the Apostle Paul tells us, test yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And see, in this sense, the Apostle Paul lines up directly with the Apostle John when John talks about these tests of eternal life that we talk about in 1 John. We've seen three of them. He talks about the test of obedience. He talks about the test of love, and he talks about the test of doctrine. A Christian will believe the right things about Christ. A Christian will show Christ's love to other people. And a Christian will, in their heart, desire to obey God. One of the things that you will notice as we can continue all of our way through uh, uh, the letter to 1 John is 1 John's a very difficult book to outline. Roman numeral 1, Roman numeral 2, Roman numeral 3. Because John is cyclical in his presentation of his information. So you'll see that John will say this earlier in chapter 1, and he will come back and repeat himself, but change it just a little bit. So he'll talk today about a Christian's desire to obey, to be righteous. He talked about that in chapter 1. Christians walk in the light, as God is in the light. We're supposed to live, walk the way that God walked. Here he starts to talk about our obedience again, but he talks about it in the form of contrast between righteousness and sinfulness. And so the illustration that I like to use about what John is trying to do here, if if you've ever worked with wood, you know that if you take a a two-by-four, you take a nail, and you tap that just a couple times into the wood, can you pull that nail out? If you've just tapped it lightly and you've gotten the nail kind of to penetrate the surface of the wood, 
you know, you could certainly flip the hammer around and use the claw and pull that out. But if you haven't driven that nail really deeply, you can kind of use your fingers and just wiggle it around and pops right out. What John is doing is tapping the wood is like telling someone something one time. What John is doing is he's not tapping a nail, he's driving a screw. And so when he starts to repeat himself and he starts to talk about righteousness and obedience, he is taking that screw and instead of tapping it, he's turning it a couple times. Now, once you've turned a screw a couple times into a piece of wood, what happens? You cannot pull that screw out without really damaging the wood. So, so John, in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, is not trying to just superficially cover us with truth. He's trying to screw it into our brains this morning. He's trying to screw it into our souls and say, <clears throat> obedience is important. And so we're going to look this morning uh, to see what John has to say about the privilege and proof of being the children of God. And we'll see our first point in chapter 2, verse 28 of 1 John. The Apostle John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says this, Now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, when Jesus appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. The first point is this, True believers will continue on with Christ. True believers will continue on with Christ. The language used here in verse 28 is abide. Abide in Him. Stay in Him. Remain in Him. Continue on with Him. And if you've heard much of the Bible, this word abide is familiar to you. You will remember it in a well-loved passage of Scripture uh, in John's Gospel. John chapter 15, verse 5. Jesus says these words, I am the vine, you are the branches. And then listen to this, he uses abide in two different ways. The one who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Why should we, according to John 15, 5, why should we abide in Christ? When we abide in Christ, what's he do? He abides in us. And He gives us the power to do things, to resist sin, to live righteously, that we don't have the power to do in and of ourselves. And so Jesus says, abide. And John repeats it. He says, now, little children, abide. So that when He shows up, we can have confidence and not shame. And we see these two points. Uh, we, we see how long we're to abide. To abide. It says, how long do we abide in verse 28? Until He appears. Those are our marching orders as Christians, to abide, to continue on. However long it takes for Jesus to come back, we are to abide. And he gives us two great reasons here in verse 28 why we should abide. These are just precious truths. We're told that true believers who continue on with Christ, who abide, receive confidence. I don't want to make this a personal illustration because we have uh, the long arm of the law in this building. So we'll, we'll pretend it's someone else. When, when that car with those flashing lights pulls up behind you, is your first inclination to look at your speedometer? If you are, if you are driving the speed limit, and your tags aren't expired, you know, your lights are, all your lights are working properly, you can have confidence when Smokey pulls up behind you. 
The people who don't have confidence, uh, not that the lights are on yet, but when, when, the, when the policeman pulls up behind you and you are obeying the law, you have confidence. You go, all right, what's he doing? He's just terrorizing me. He's persecuting me. Uh, you, you can have confidence when you're obeying. And the same thing is true. When Jesus comes, the Bible tells us that Jesus' return will be like a thief in the night. You're not going to expect it. When he shows up, is it going to be like the policeman pulling in behind you? Oh my goodness, he's here already. I wasn't expecting him for another five years. Because the Bible says, the people who abide have the opportunity to have confidence. And this word for confidence is a great one. We use the word confidence and we think kind of proud, kind of boisterous. That's not what the Greek word for confidence means. The Greek word for confidence means you have a problem and you are talking to a friend and you have the opportunity to completely unburden your heart knowing that your friend will not judge you for the thing that you're unburdening your heart to them. That's the same thing that happens with Jesus. Listen, are us in this room who are Christians, are we sinners? That, that was not emphatic. Uh, so in case you're confused, let me ask the question again. People in this room, members of this church, are we sinners? Yes. Absolutely. But when Jesus comes back, we don't have to be ashamed because we can unburden our heart. We have taken our sins to Jesus for him to take care of it. We can have confidence. We can say, Jesus, I tried. And I just, I, I didn't live the way that I needed to. And when I lived good, the only reason I lived good is because you empowered me to do it. So all the good stuff that I have, I have to give back to you because you're the one that helped me to do it. That's the confidence that we can have that we're not going to be judged for our sin. But the, the opposite is true too. While it's great news that people who abide in Christ can have great confidence, the, the, the truth is that we avoid shame. We're not embarrassed and the truth is, when the Bible talks about this concept of abiding, man, abiding is really difficult work. It's a battle because we don't naturally wake up and go, all right, um, let me check out my, my to-do list today. I've got this, 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 this to do. Uh, you know, I've got to do this. I've got to run this report. I've got to make these phone calls. Typically on our task list for the day is not abiding in, in, in Christ. Now, I, I wish it would be. I wish every single one of you, when you have your to-do list, number one on your list would be live for Jesus today. We don't wake up and think about that. Even those of us that are Christians and have been Christians for a long time, abiding is a battle. It's kind of like, it's kind of like pulling weeds. If you live in a neighborhood where everyone takes care of their lawn, what do you want to do? You, want, you, don't, want to have, you don't want to have the nastiest yard in your neighborhood. There's this temptation, and it's a good temptation, to kind of keep up with the Joneses. All right, I can see he mows his grass on the diagonal. You know, that's what you do. with You have a fancy yard. You, you don't just cut it this way. You cut it that way. You go diagonal. You want to keep, you want to maintain your yard. Now, it, I have met a few personalities that are very particular with their yard maintenance. I mean, they, they want to get it right. They want it to look good. And if you're one of those kinds of people... The truth is, uh, abiding in Christ is like pulling weeds. You might not notice a single solitary weed wiggling in your front yard. One, it's easy to overlook. But if a bunch of them pop up in your yard, you start pulling your hair out, going, where did all these things come from? In, in the same way, abiding is the way that we maintain our relationship with God. We pull the weeds. When there's sin, we pull it. 
Sometimes, admittedly, as Christians, when there's one single little solitary sin kind of hanging there, there's never one, but we just notice the one. We, we overlook it. And the truth is we should be careful. We should be diligent. We should be fastidious in maintaining the weeds in our own soul in the same way that we take care of the weeds in our own lawn. And so here's the thing that is great. Uh, in the same way that yard maintenance requires constant vigilance, so does abiding in Christ. And at the risk of sounding like um, Jesse Jackson here this morning, I'll put it this way. If you continue, if you abide, if you continue, you get confidence. If you maintain, you will not be ashamed. It's the people who let their yard go. And when Jesus shows up, they go, if I would have known you were coming, I would have cut the grass. Well, you know what? He's coming. So keep the grass cut. That's what the Bible tells us about abiding in Christ. Now, here's the question. This word abide, remain in Christ. That's, that's great. Let's, let's rah, rah, let's go out, let's abide. One really important question. How do you abide? What do you do to abide? If your son, daughter, uh, son-in-law, daughter-in-law, grandchild came to you and said, Mom, Dad, Pops, how do I abide? What do you tell them? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because John tells us here really clearly in his second and third point. Uh, in, verses, uh, in chapter 2, verse 29 through chapter 3, verse 1, uh, we see that true, true believers abide, uh, or they continue on by practicing righteousness. Look at these passages with me. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Oh, see, behold, how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. John gives us two very compelling reasons for why Christians abide by practicing righteousness. And here's the first thing. Believers practice righteousness because we are in God's family. In these verses, John is focusing on who we are right now. Look at verse 1. Behold the love uh, that he's given us, that we can be called the children of God, uh, comma, and such we are. Right now, if you are a Bible-believing Christian who has trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, you're not just a Christian. You are a child of God. That is amazing to think about. And so we're told a most gracious thing, that the God of the universe, the one who made us, the one who keeps everything running, has adopted us into his family. Now here's the, here's the trick. When you hear the word adoption, we all start thinking about Annie, you know, um, the little red-haired girl getting adopted by Daddy Warbucks. Is that right? Okay, great. <clears throat> Unlike earthly adoption, an adopted child does not physically look anything like their adopted parent. Spiritually speaking, that's not true. When God adopts you into his family, we're told that spiritual adoption means that we should bear a family resemblance to our Heavenly Father. When God says, you're in my family, here's who you were, now you get the chance to be something different. And so one of the reasons we practice righteousness is we're so grateful for what God has done. We want to be like him genuinely. And so this truth <clears throat> that we're adopted by God. Wow, listen, you get a chance to go to school tomorrow 
to go to work tomorrow and say, I'm not like the rest of the world. I'm, I'm a child of God. That's a pretty heady concept, isn't it? It could pretty easily make you very proud, very self-righteous. But pay attention to what this passage says. Look at verse 29. Let's read it backwards. Not literally, conceptually. Verse 29 ends with a person who is born of God. What does a person who is born of God do? If you continue back in verse 29, he practices righteousness. Why does a person who is born of God practice righteousness? Keep running backwards. Because we know what? That he is righteous. Why do we live for God? Not because we're trying to be better than our neighbor. Not because we're trying to earn our way into salvation. We are living righteously because Jesus is righteous. He has come as a substitute, paid the penalty for our sin, given us new life that we can glorify Him. That's amazing news. And beyond merely forgiving us, God gives us the opportunity to be His children. I don't know, I don't know adequately the best way to express this, but our normal, everyday idea of what it means to be a Christian is completely um, not even close to getting what the New Testament has to say about being a child of God. We're not just... To be a Christian is to be a child of God, and yet we kind of make it sound like it's a hobby. Like, you know, NASCAR racing, or gardening, or quilting. No, our nature has changed. We've been adopted into a new family. We have the opportunity to be righteous, not because we are, but because He is. We needed Him. We know that He is righteous. So we practice righteousness, and by that, prove by looking like our Father that we're in His family. And so as He says this in verse 29, He jumps into chapter 3, verse 1, and He just has to stop writing for a second. And He says, oh, behold! In the middle of His letter writing, John just has to stop and worship for just a second. And so recognize how our customary ideas about who we are as Christians are typically utterly and totally inadequate. Jesus is, John is saying here that where, what, what Jesus has done in, verse, in chapter 1 gave us the opportunity for fellowship with God. We walk in the light as He is in the light. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. In chapter 1, the theme is fellowship. In chapter 3, the theme is sonship. So here, here's the thing. God is not our friend. Jesus is not our homeboy. God is our Father. And the way that we water things down about how we talk about our relationship with God, oh, you know, He loves me and I love Him and I walk with Him, get rid of the cute stuff and focus on the fact that God has done something different in Christ to invite us into His family. That's an incredible thing. And John says here, listen, this fellowship thing that we've got, the only reason we can have fellowship with God is because what Jesus has done to make us sons, our sonship or daughtership is the basis of our fellowship. Here's the theological term. Our communion, our friendship with God is based on our union or our identification, our adoption by God. There is no fellowship between Christians without adoption. And so there's a dangerous thing for us to talk about while all people are children of God. Patently false. It's a lie. 
Don't ever let those words come from your lips again. All men who are created are the creation of God, but who are the children of God? Those who call upon His name. So don't call someone brother or sister in a spiritual sense who is not a Bible-believing Christian, someone who has not repented and confessed their sins and trusted Christ. We have no right to invite someone into the family of God who has not been invited into the family of God by God Himself. And so we need to be very careful talking about this. Our fellowship is based on our sonship. And the truth of this is, there is no one who is born into God's family. There's no one who's a natural descendant. We, are all, we all get into God's family how? By adoption. That's a great thing. He didn't have to. But he did in his love. He chose us. And so this is a great thing. And here's, here's the truth. Adoption into God's family is the foundation for every ethical appeal, every call to holiness in the New Testament. John, Paul, Peter, never say, hey, you need to be holy so God will accept you. They never say, do better, try harder, and God will be glad to call you his child. No, they, get it, they, they reverse it. They say, because you are a child of God, look like him. They don't say, here's an impossible standard for you to achieve. Live up to it. They say, God has already done it. You just need to be who God has made you to be. You need to live out what God has already done. He's given you His Word. He's given you His Spirit. He's given you fellowship to encourage you to live out what God has already said is true. The question is, do you believe it? Because if you believe it, it will change the way that you live. So a great thing. It's the second compelling reason to pursue holiness we see in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Um, he moves from focusing on what we are as the children of God to focusing on the hope that we have and what we will be. Beloved, now, right now, currently, presently, in this moment, we are the children of God, but it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him, Jesus, just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. John is here again reminding us of the second coming of Christ. And he says, listen, if you think being a child of God is wonderful now, guess what? There's more to be revealed. We are fully and completely the children of God right now. But the full picture of what that means, the full implications of what that means, will not finally be revealed until Jesus returns. So if being a child of God is a precious privilege right now, guess what? Dessert is coming. If you like the main course, wait, wait for the dessert round because it's even better is what he's telling us. <clears throat> and he tells us very simply that if now is incredible, the future is even more awesome. And in a word, we will be like Jesus. Now, we need to differentiate ourselves from cults and false teachers who say we will be identical to... We will not be Jesus. We will be like Jesus. We're still a creation. Jesus is not created. We will be like Him. That doesn't mean that we're going to be omniscient like God is. I hear people talk about that. We will be morally like Christ. We will be without sin because He'll have completely cleansed us. 
We will be intellectually like, like Jesus in the sense that we'll be without deceit. We'll know truth. We won't be God in the sense of being omniscient. We will be physically like Jesus. We will have a resurrection body. What does that mean? I don't know. But whatever Jesus is like, we're going to be like that. And we'll be spiritually like Jesus because we will be completely and totally filled with the Holy Spirit. Abiding for the first time in our life will not be a problem. Because right now, when we abide, we leak. We don't keep it in. Holy Spirit fills us up, and immediately the plug is pulled, and the Holy Spirit starts draining out. It's a problem. And so this awesome hope that we have for the future, being a child of God right now is incredible, but this hope we have for the future purifies us in the present. He says, if you have the hope of being like Jesus, it changes how you live right now. And so a couple things about this. The verb, uh, when it says in chapter 3, verse 3, everyone who has this hope fixed on Christ purifies himself, it's a reflexive verb, okay? Uh, Teenagers, young adults, this means mama can't purify you. It means grandma can't purify you. Married people, it means that your spouse can't purify you. Who has to do it? You do. No, God does it through you, but you have to take the responsibility to purify yourself because of the hope that you have. No one else can do it for you. And here's what I love. John uses these analogies all through his scripture, and he talks about Christians walking in the light. Um, I don't know if uh, you've ever had the experience that you're having a, you're sleeping in just a little bit in the morning, and uh, you have a spouse that happens to be an early riser, and when she gets up or he gets up, all the lights come on, you know, and you're still sleeping, you know, what, what happens? What do you do? <laughs> it takes a second for your eyes to kind of adjust to the light. If that happens physically, it takes us a while for our eyes to get used to seeing, seeing in the light. Wouldn't it make sense that that would take, take place spiritually too? Here's the thing that's sweet. The longer you walk with Jesus, the more, the more purity there should be in your life, but the more strenuous you get with your tests. I, I, don't, I don't sin with my mouth the way that I did 20 years ago. You know what's happened? All my sins, they've gone underground. You know, they're, they're in here now. So what's weird about Christians is we look really nice on the outside, and inside we're still filthy. You know, but the longer you walk in the light and the more your eyes adjust to seeing things by God's standard, the more you begin to realize in your own life where things are just not up to code. And you start to go, you know what? I've been a Christian for 30 years now. I can't believe I still struggle with this. I still struggle with anger. I still struggle with pride. I still struggle with whatever. Struggle with recognition. And you start to say, all right, I need to do something about that. It's not enough to be clean on the outside. I need to be clean on the inside too. I need God not just to Clean, clean me up so that other people think much of me. I need to have integrity with who I am as I live as a Christian. So we begin to adjust to living in the light and being serious about purifying ourselves. And he says, whoever has this hope purifies himself. When we use this word hope, <laughs> uh, it's not like um, the hope that we have for, you know, I hope so-and-so, I hope Green Bay wins the Super Bowl. Who cares whether Green Bay wins the Super Bowl? That's a hope that has no 
Well, there might be someone here who cares. Um, yeah, there you go. I see that hand. Um, there might be someone here who cares if Green Bay wins the Super Bowl, but it doesn't change how you live. And so sometimes when we talk about biblical hope, you know, it's kind of like wishful thinking. Well, you know, I really wish Jesus would come back at some point. He says, no, when we have this hope. And here's, I don't like math. I'll admit it. But this is the most um, godly equation that I can think of for helping us to understand what Bible-based hope looks like. Bible-based hope is belief in the promises of God plus trust in the character of God equals hope. So if God says it, we believe it, and we believe it because we know that God is true and He will not lie. And that gives us hope. So if Jesus says He's coming back, has anyone seen anything that makes you go, you know what, Jesus is coming back next week? Maybe. There are some people that read the newspaper looking every day for that kind of stuff. They're almost wishing for disasters, you know, because then they go, wow, that means Jesus coming back is quick. That's perverted. We're not going to go there. But the, the point is, we believe Jesus is coming back because we believe His promises and we trust His character, and that's what hope is about. We begin to purify ourselves because Jesus is coming back. And so we see some great things here. We continue on with Christ. We continue on by practicing righteousness. But our third and final point is that not only do believers continue on with Christ by practicing righteousness, but the opposite is also true. True believers continue on with Christ by forsaking sin. And it's important for us to see why we forsake sin. And there's three subpoints here that we'll talk about briefly. First, John says that Christians forsake sin because Jesus is precious. And you can see this in verses 4 and 5. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. It says very clearly what sin is like. Sin is lawlessness. That means you are, if you are sinning in this way, you are sinning like there is no law to constrain you. You are a law unto yourself. I can do whatever I want. And for the Christian, that is manifestly not true. You have been bought with a price. You are to honor God in your decision making. You are to honor God in your body. And so uh, he, is, he is saying here that sin here is outright rebellion, active disobedience, that there is no law to restrain, that we're completely indifferent to sin. This is a different conception of sin as defiant rebellion. <clears throat> Pastor Larry read the verse, if we, are, uh, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. In 1 John 1, sin is pictured as a defilement that we need cleansed from. In John chapter 3, sin is pictured as active and willful disobedience to the law of God. You cannot be a Christian and sin haphazardly and recklessly. It says here very clearly, Jesus appeared, which is an interesting word. Uh, it doesn't say Jesus was born. Why? Because he lived before he was born. Jesus appeared to take away sin. And he packs a bunch in here. He talks about Jesus' preexistence, and I love this. It says, uh, Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. And then what's that last phrase? In him there is no sin. Not there was no sin in the past. Not there is no sin right now. Not there will be no sin. 
the characteristic of Jesus for which we should be most grateful for and that saves us is that Jesus was without sin. In being without sin, he took our sins upon us as our substitute and died in our place. The gospel is right there in that verse and we skip over it. In him, there is no sin. So, if Jesus appeared to take away sins, Christians cannot be indifferent to sin. We cannot be lawless. Again, to go back to uh, our previous point, we should want to be like our Father. So here's, here's a tough application. If you are here in church today and you have no desire to be like Christ, the most loving thing I can do for you is to tell you, you are not a Christian. You may have gone to church all your life, but you know what? Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Okay? Some of you need to think about that. You'll get that later. If you have no desire to be like Christ, John would say very clearly, you need to repent from your religious clothes that you've dressed yourself up with to make it look like you're religious, but you're not a Christian. Christians want to be like their father. And Christians, as a corollary, say that Jesus is precious, and because Jesus appeared to take away sins, we're going to join the fight too. The second reason for forsaking sin is that John says habitual sin, repetitive sin, unchecked sin is inconsistent for a true believer. Look at verses 6 through 8. Boy, this is, and it's a difficult verse. Listen to this. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. But the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. But the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Verse 6 is stated very strongly. He says, no one who abides in him will keep on sinning. And it's not that a believer will never ever commit a single act of sin. He clarifies in verse 7 and 8. He says, little children, the one who practices righteousness is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. What he's saying here is that we, um, we will not practice sin. We will not sin with the intention of trying to get better at it. You know, let's see what I can get away with today. I'm going to practice sin. Sin's kind of fun, and I want to get better at it. Pastor Larry came to me this week. He's playing a sport that he has never, ever played before. And he's worried. He's playing fantasy football. (laughs) And he has been practicing all week long. He has been fantasizing every day about his team winning. The problem is, I don't think it's going to help him at all. (laughs) The point is this. In the sports world, there's a saying. You play how? How you practice. 
So if you practice goofing up, what's going to happen come game time? You're going to get killed. If you practice playing poorly, what are you assured of come game time? You will indeed play poorly. Why do we do all this repetitive stuff when we practice? To get better, to memorize the, the play, to memorize the playbook, to remember the procedural manual. We practice. And the point that he's making here is that if we are habitually sinning and practicing sinning and we don't have a problem with it, that is inconsistent with the testimony of a child of God who is practicing living for God, not thumbing their nose in God's direction and saying, hey, thanks for saving me, but I'm going to live however the heck I want to live. That's not what a Christian does. He forsakes sin because Jesus is precious. He forsakes sin because habitual sin is inconsistent. And you see in verse 8 that Jesus says that he appeared to take away sin, to destroy it, to destroy the works of the devil. And just as we said about ethical admonition, Jesus doesn't say, live up to the standard and I'll accept you. He says, be what you are. The truth is you are always living out what you are. If you are living out righteousness, you're proving by the way that you live that you're a child of God. But if you are living out practicing sin, the truth of the matter is you need to go home, take a good look at your family photo, your family reunion picture, and figure out who your daddy is. Because the Bible says you, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. If you are practicing righteousness, you will look like your dad. If you are practicing sin, the difficult truth is if there is no check for your sin, if there is no remorse, if there is no conscience that is pricking you, then it says that is pretty clear evidence that you are a son of your father, the devil. So sin is not a mistake. John makes it very clear that sin is something that the devil does. The, sin is characteristic of Satan. And sin is characteristic of his children. So get this really clearly. The point is not that, oh my goodness, I sinned this week, I can't be a Christian. No, no, no. The point is, what do you do once you've sinned? Do you repent? Do you ask for forgiveness? Do you try to pursue holiness? The point is not, again, to establish this impossible standard. The point is, in your heart, what do you want to do? Do you want to practice righteousness or do you want to practice sin? question John would have for you this morning is, which are you practicing? Which is habitual for you? Which is your ongoing tendency? Which is the characteristic of your life? Which defines you more, practicing sin or practicing righteousness? And then I love this. And our last and final point, John gives his third and final reasons why Christians forsake sin in verses 9 and 10. And he says, basically, it's because God has instilled a new life in his children. Look at verse 9 and 10. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed, God's seed, abides in him. And he cannot sin. Why? Because he's born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Why does it say that we do not practice sin? Verse 9. It doesn't say we don't practice sin so that everyone around us thinks that we're really good. That when, you know, we run for office, everybody votes for us because, man, he's a good guy. No, it doesn't say that we practice, we don't practice sin so that people think well of us. It says we don't practice sin because his seed abides in us. God, when a person becomes a Christian, plants a little bitty seed 
of new life in a person's heart. And what happens is that seed is to be nourished, it's to be fertilized, it's to be watered, it's to be cared for. And that seed, when it implants in the soul of the new believer, when it's nurtured, turns into a redwood of righteousness, a, a mighty oak of holiness, of living unto God. And so our spiritual life, while we have the hard work of living for God, we also acknowledge it's not our work. It's God who is working powerfully through us to bring about this radical change in the life of the believer. I love this because when we talk about, you know, those, those who have this hope purify themselves, and we make it sound like it really is all about us, And the Bible here in this passage is going to conclude by saying it really has very little to do with you. It has to do with what God has done. And if you look here, John puts the emphasis very clearly on God. Look at the passage carefully, and you'll see the entire Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, at work to make us live how we should as the children of God. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3 talk about, oh, look, look, verse 1, look how great, a love who the Father has bestowed upon us. Look at verse uh, 5. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins. Who's He? Jesus. Look at verse 8. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So you have the love of the Father, the work of the Son to take away sins and to destroy the work of the devil. And then verse 9 and 10, He says that there's this life principle, this seed This spirit that abides in him. So friends, if you're not living for God, you're denying the love of the Father. You're denying the work of the Son. You're denying the ministry of the Spirit who is behind you, pushing you forward in holiness. And you want to practice sin? When you have... In this congregation and in your soul, the power to live for God. All three members of the Trinity actively involved in the life of the true believer to help them abide in Christ. The truth is most of our unhappiness in the Christian life comes when we try to live the Christian life in our own power. When we've got the power of our triune, awesome, and holy God to empower us to do the things that he's already told us to do. We have to allow him to have his word, his, his, his work in our lives. Won't you let our triune God work in you instead of working yourself? It's been said that the one who knows that God is at the end of the road makes all of life a preparation to meet him. How are you preparing this morning? Are you practicing sin or are you practicing righteousness? Pray with me, please. Holy Father, I will confess my own inadequacy to, to share these words. It is such a danger when we talk about obedience and we talk about sin in the life of a Christian to make it sound like this is a legalistic thing that we have to measure up to get your approval. And Lord, that is so far from the truth. You empower us for spirit-filled living. We don't have to earn your favor. If we are truly your children, you love us already. 
And you just ask us to raise our eyes and to look at the standard of Christ and to live like we belong in your family. And so today, Lord, I I pray that by your spirit, you will lay your conviction upon uh, these hearers today. That if they are not living out the truths of their confession, that you'll allow this invitation to be a chance for them to pray, to come and speak with one of our pastors, and to say, I'm not living right. I need to figure out ways to continue on with Christ, to practice righteousness, to forsake sin. Lord, this is our chance to say you are a wonderful God who has provided at every step of our journey of life the things that we need to live for you. And I pray that as we enter into this time of invitation that you will have your way upon our weak and feeble hearts to draw us closer to you so that we might abide. Lord, for those of us that um, are abiding okay, this invitation may not be a, a chance for them to walk an aisle, but a chance that as we sing and as we pray to say, thank you, God, for your grace to help me to live for you. So Lord, this invitation is for every single one of us. Whether we are abiding to praise you for your grace, or if we're not abiding, to come and say, God, in your mercy, will you forgive me and allow me to start over? I pray that today, as we sing, you will work on our hearts. In Jesus' name.